He says, you ain't the president and you ain't my father. He's got like this great New England accent going oh, on, by the way. So good. I'm sick of your laughing, your snoring, and your goddamn farts. Your damn goddamn <laughs> farts. Goddamn your farts. Hello, hello, and welcome to Skeleton Closet, a podcast at the intersection of queerness and horror. I'm Jake. And I'm Shannon. Shannon, how are you doing today? I'm, I'm doing pretty good. How are you, Jake? Terrific. I'm really excited for our first episode. We're here to talk about The Lighthouse 2019, directed by Robert Eggers. Um, Shannon, we established in the end of our last episode that, you know, we've been friends for a while. We were, we were friends in high school, but we were also sort of like rivals. We've always had sort of a rivalry between us. We're sort of... Oh, yes. There's a bit of a competitive nature to our, to our friendship. In a way Absolutely. we... Absolutely. <laughs> in a way we've sort of been haunting each other for the last 10 years in, in the ways that we know each other. This movie is fraught with complicated depictions of, of relationships between friends. And it's given me the language to say to you what I've always sort of felt in my heart, but haven't really had the words to say. So here's, here's something I'd like to say. Damn ye! Let Neptune strike thee dead, Pearson. Hark, Triton, hark! <laughs> Bellow and bid our father, the sea king, rise up from the depths. Full foul in his fury, black waves teeming with salt foam to smother this young mouth with pungent slime, to choke ye, engorging your organs till ye turn blue and bloated with bilge and brine and scream no more, forgotten to any man, to any time, forgotten to any god or devil, forgotten even to the sea. For any stuff or part of Pearson, even any scantling of your soul, is Pearson no more, but is now itself the sea. Well, fine. I like your cooking. <laughs> <laughs> well done. Well Thanks. done. Thanks. I had, I'm feeling lightheaded now. That was a lot of air that I expelled in one go. Um, right? This movie's a lot, to say the least, right? It really is, but I, I think you're kicking us off on a really good point, which is the monologues. Like, uh, that was one of Willem Dafoe's monologues in this, and yeah. he just, like, I was I was blown away when I watched it. Like, his delivery of these speeches with, like, no breaks for, like, big gasps of air, you know, nothing like that. He just, like, goes on like a Shakespearean actor. It's beautiful. This movie is sometimes called a character study rather than a horror movie. It's called a lot of things. We've established that we're not really snobs for the genre. It can be a psychological thriller. It can be a horror movie. It can be a character study. But there's definitely something very Shakespearean about the way that it's written and the, the way that these performances are sort of drawn out with these long monologues of, of flowery language. Or maybe flowery is not the right word. It's, you know, muddy salty and Salty language? Shitty. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Muddy and shitty and salty, like, very much like the sea, like the rock that, you know, the island that they're on for this. This was it's... my second time watching this movie. This is one that I that I brought to the show. You graciously let me essentially <laughs> pick the movie that we kicked off our podcast with, and I instantly picked sort of the weirdest one I can think of to ensure that we're starting <laughs> this podcast off on, on the weirdest note possible. What were your sort of general impressions uh, on a first viewing? 
So I watched it for the first time with my mom and <laughs> there was like a glitch when I was casting it onto the TV where like occasionally it would like replay like 10 or 15 seconds of the movie. And I like we thought that was part of the movie and we were like, wow, this is like so artsy, like splicing in these like little repeats of scenes, you know, like instill <laughs> doubt and blah, blah, blah. And then I watched it back on my own for the second time and I was like, okay, so where do... Where does that splicing in start happening? Is it, you know, is it when Robert Pattinson has like a fall and he hits his head or blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, oh, wait, <laughs> that was just a mistake from the uh, <laughs> casting onto the TV. But I overall, I I really loved it. Like, I think it was it was quite a statement on like masculinity, on desire, on surveillance and dominance and, you know, perceived reality. Right. And I, I just love the tension between Robert Pattinson and Willem Dafoe. Like, this movie really illustrates that you don't need a huge cast to have something very, like, in-depth. What about you, Jake? What What are your thoughts and feelings? Yeah, I mean, this is my second time watching the movie. I watched it with my partner, Kayla. It is a movie that we know. It, it's a movie that's a favorite of ours. Uh, we watched it together on the first viewing as well. After watching it for the first time, I was, this was one of those movies where I was saying to myself, like, it was a good movie and I loved it and it was a good watch, but it's something that I'll never want to watch a second time because it's sort of so foul. Like, it is, it is truly one of maybe the foulest movies I've ever seen put to, to film. <laughs> but on, it's even better on a second viewing, to be honest, because you can see exactly when some of the omens first form and then uh, come to fruition. And yeah, as you said, that sort of relationship dynamic between these two characters is so in-depth. It is all things. They are uh, uh, hateful They to each other. They, they want each other's approval. They uh, both have like times where they dominate the other one. It is, um, they are kind of all things to each other at all times. I guess we'll start off with just sort of a summary. Like we'll go through the events of the movie. So if you have not seen the movie uh for the audience we're just gonna go through and talk about sort of everything that happened so obviously spoilers are coming up um i do recommend that you watch the movie but of course it's not required reading for for an episode <laughs> of our podcast um so the movie starts off with a long opening uh intro piece where you're seeing uh this boat arriving to this this uh this abandoned lighthouse and uh, two men are arriving to sort of tend the, the lighthouse. You know, it's there to make sure the ships don't crash into the coast so that they can find their way in a storm. Um, there is no dialogue for the first seven minutes of the movie of these two men arriving. <laughs> you see their boat in the water. You hear the mechanical sounds of the engine. It's rhythmic. Um, you see the lapping of the waves, you know, hitting the boat, hitting the island. The two wikis that they're there to replace just sort of trudge away from the lighthouse while they trudge toward the lighthouse. They do not acknowledge each other. They don't exchange a single word. Um, and nothing is said for the entire first seven minutes of the movie. And it just feels like drudgery. It feels like trudging towards something. It is so comically inhospitable, their arrival to this <laughs> island. Well, I mean, it is the 1890s. So, like, this is a depressing time um, in human reality. My God. And, like, this New England island. 
really sets that up. Like, rock in the middle of nowhere. It reminds me of Newfoundland, you know? <laughs> it was shot in Nova Scotia. This is um, technically a Canadian production, as a lot of things are. Not everyone realizes how much stuff is shot in Canada. So, yeah, it definitely sort of should remind you of your time out on Canada's East Coast. Aw, fuck yeah. Like, my my favorite part about the opening is that we have Winslow, which is Robert Pattinson, and the, the like the very first thing he does is he's like, I need a smoke. So he t- has like a smoke. And as he's like exploring their little house that they have that's attached to the lighthouse tower by like a tunnel is there. You hear this like trickling sound from upstairs as we're like showing around. <laughs> and then it reveals that Tom, who's played by Willem Dafoe, is just taking a piss upstairs. So I'm like. Perfect. So this movie starts with one of them having a smoke, the other one taking a piss. Like, beautiful. We also get sort of a reveal of the two characters, because they're sort of just kind of two shadowy black cloaked figures approaching the lighthouse. And then we get a reveal of them just staring directly into the camera. And it sort of reminds you of, like, American Gothic or something like that. It's just they're, like, dead-faced. And then, yeah, as uh, Robert Pattinson's character starts to explore their lodgings like i say comically inhospitable like he's jiggling the furniture the furniture doesn't work like the cabinets don't open he bangs his head on the roof as he's walking up to their room and then yeah his new roommate who he has not said a single word to is just pissing in a bucket and farting like it it starts off with this level of just bleak cruelty that will not let up for the rest of the entire movie uh we're just so perfect uh i mean it it, yeah it really does set up like how awful their housing situation is like this is a pretty shabby cabin that they're living in you know very simple very bare bones but like i mean how much do these guys really need to survive right like uh at that point as they're sort of like getting accustomed to their lodging winslow robert pattinson discovers uh, a carved statue out of a mermaid hidden in his uh his bed's mattress yeah like when i first saw him digging in the mattress i'm like oh my god is he pulling out wads of hair that's disgusting but like yeah this this little ivory scrimshaw this like statuette and i'm like okay cool so there's gonna be mermaids in this all right appropriate there's a whole lot of stuff that goes on in the beginning that just feels dark and you don't quite understand what is about to to come of it. Yeah, I mean, in this very beginning part is when, like, I started to kind of see the divide in what these two different men really, like, coveted about the island. So, like, Winslow, he's got this, like, mermaid little scrimshaw statuette, whereas... Like, Tom is clearly very, like, possessive and protective of the lighthouse and, like, the lantern and the light itself. Yeah, and he refers to it uh, with female pronouns. He specifically says, like, the light is mine. I tend the light. He's very possessive over it. Yeah, yeah, like, it's, it's very much like how sailors refer to, like, a ship as she and her. But please go on. Um, and the, the director goes on to make a note in an interview, and we'll talk about this later, where, um, the mermaid, the lantern, and the sea are the only female characters in the movie. Ooh. Oh, true. Um, so they, they go on to have their first dinner together in the lighthouse, and, uh... 
Tom Wake, the older wiki, is uh, he's there to make a toast. Do you want to do you want to recite? His oh my toast? god! Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> Should pale death with treble dread make the ocean caves our bed? God, who hearest the surges roll, dine to save the suppliant soul. Yeah, so he offers this toast, and he's he's very much like sort of an archetype of a salty sea captain, if you're picturing his voice, like kind of a, a stereotype of a pirate. Um, he also pronounces ocean as ocean, which like just Ooh. bothered me throughout the movie. I don't know if that's like era <laughs> accurate. But it just, he said Ocean like five times and I noticed it. It was one of the very many off putting things. I don't know why that. It's like how he insists on Winslow saying I, sir, as opposed to yes, sir. No, it's I, sir. Yeah, you need to use like the sailor language. You mentioned that he yeah. is the one who tends the light and he's very possessive over it. He also, like. Robert Pattinson's character is the only one who is doing any manual labor whatsoever. Like, he's shoveling coal into the furnace. He has to go fix the cistern because he goes for a drink of water and, like, immediately chokes on it because it's, like, gross and black and literally made Kayla gag as we were watching it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, it's quite interesting how the, you know, the older guy who's kind of, like, the supervisor, I guess... So, like, Tom is, like, you know, he's a seasoned wiki, and he makes, like, the younger guy do all of the backbreaking labor, but, like, insists at some point, he's like, oh, I have the worst shift of all, which is watching the light from, uh, through the night until morning. You know, that's, like, the dreaded time when, like, maybe a man would go insane, and he kind of, like, puffs himself up of, like, oh, I'm, I'm doing this for you, like, you're getting off easy, boy. At the end of their sort of first night together, uh, Winslow goes up the stairs to sort of check on the light. It's not really clear what he's doing on there, but he goes up and he sees that uh, Wake is standing there naked, observing the light. He's sort of like speaking to it. Um, something weird seems to be going on between him and, and the light. Uh, we, we don't really know what's going on there, but... He spends a lot of time up there sort of naked and just watching it and talking to it. Uh, He goes on to have a a, a nightmare that night. Do you want to talk about that? Oh, yeah. Okay, so one of the things I noticed was at their first dinner, uh, Winslow refuses to drink alcohol and Tom is, like, insisting he does. But he doesn't. He drinks that, like, nasty water and chokes. Yeah. And then he has this, like, very bizarre dream of, like, going down to the ocean's edge, going down to the beach and seeing, like logs floating in the water and then a body and the body turns out to be a mermaid and he's awoken by like water leaking from the roof and like pitter pattering on his face and this is a reminder that whatever reality he has escaped by arriving at the lighthouse is really like the same level of bleak because water's dripping on his face and uh wake is immediately there to remind him that he's been neglecting his duties and that he needs to fix the shingling on the roof and that's why the water's leaking on him <laughs> it takes me to, like, one of my favorite scenes, which is fucking Winslow with his, like, wheelbarrow full of coal, and he's, like, <laughs> drudging it up the rock, and then there's a gull, like, a seagull just blocking his path, standing in front of the door, like, laughing at him, and he's, like, you know, like, go away, go away, and, like, chucks a little piece of coal at the gull, like... Yeah, a strange 
one-eyed seagull is maybe one of the best performances in the movie, which says a lot because the performances are all very good. But that is the sassiest bird I've ever seen, I gotta say. Oh my god, it is. It is. And it gets sassier. Like, yeah. I... I... I couldn't believe that. And and after he chucks the the lump of coal at it and scares it away, he sort of looks up at the lighthouse and Wake is standing up there just watching it. Like again, uh, uh, Winslow is doing all of the labor and this dude is watching him, but just the judgment is just thick. It's constant from him. This dude is kind of a bastard to to start off. Oh, this guy is totally a bastard. Like the next part is Winslow, you know. Uh, he's got to, like, put oil in the lantern. So he takes this, like, huge, like, canister <laughs> of oil and fucking, like, drags it up these stairs. So in the lighthouse, there are these, like, metal spiral stairs going up. And he, like, has to drag it slowly up every single one and then gets to the top to find Tom was watching him the entire time, <laughs> didn't help him, mocks him, and then is, like, Oh, here's like a tiny handheld canister. You might want to use this next time. Oh, and by the way, take that back down again. Like this. Yeah, because it's a fire a hazard ass. to have this massive canister of oil up here. Um, oh yeah, man, just power trips. Like he power trips, and I think like uh, Tom says at some point. Like I think it's during dinner that night. He says boredom makes men to villains, and that's where I'm like, okay, so like. Tom knows he's a dick. Like, he knows he is, like, doing this to Winslow. Like, I'm I'm pretty sure, like, he's intentionally doing it to, like, make fun of this guy, like, kind of, like, hazing the rookie, right? Yeah, and it goes so far beyond, like, one guy just doing all the work and one guy not. He is also just disgusted by Wake. Like, there's, there's a moment where uh, he has to go up and fix the shingles on the roof because um obviously the water was dripping on him and he's going and peeling shingles off the roof and he looks down through the roof into their quarters and wake appears to just sort of be pleasuring himself like he's just sort of humping his mattress and it's one of the several self-pleasuring scenes that we get in this movie again i did pick the foulest <laughs> movie to start our podcast <laughs> off um and then yeah when they're having dinner that night which see you know as far as we can tell is the second night we get the toast again the whole you know should the ocean caves make our bed uh, whatever that was and then um he said he has this monologue where he says boredom makes men to villains and this is sort of like the first of these long monologues that we get in this movie um wake tells us a little bit about his history as uh as an actual sea captain that he worked on a boat uh, called the Chicopee. There was a mutiny on board um, and essentially saying, you know, being out at sea and isolated for this long, this boredom can turn men to villains. And the one thing that can help is actually alcohol. Like you should be, you should be drinking. That's actually going to be healthy for you in the long run. And after that, we get our, <laughs> our second masturbation scene, which is Winslow this time. And my, I, I love how, you know, he's got the scrimshaw, like the little mermaid, sitting next to him on the bed. You know, he's jerking off and there's the like the gull at the window just like knocking on the glass, like interrupting him. <laughs> and like that just it feels appropriate to Winslow's life at this point. Like he's constantly being observed, whether it's by the gulls or whether it's by Tom, just like overseeing all of his work. And clearly when like Winslow is just 
constantly being watched because like next tom comes like flying at him with accusations of like oh you've been doing a really shitty job like mop the floors again and again and again and again and if i tell you to clean them again you're gonna do it again you're taking gonna take apart this whole place you're gonna shine the nails with your spit until they're gleaming and then put it all back together if i tell you to like, and he he says something to the effect of you're gonna clean the floors until they shine like a sperm whale's pecker um <laughs> Which, like, made a lot of people think of Moby Dick, uh, specifically in the way that, like, Ahab referred to the anatomy of whales, and it wasn't even really correct at most points. Um, mm -hmm. The the moment with the gull interrupting him during his sort of, uh, you know, moment of, of uh, utmost privacy as well, it carries a lot of weight because uh, at that dinner where we got that, that first monologue, one of the things that Wake told him is that he saw him sparring with the gull, um... And he doesn't approve of the way that he threw that rock at the at the seagull. And he informs Winslow that it's bad luck to kill a seabird um, because they have the the souls of dead sailors in them. Uh, and he also informs him that his last junior wiki, the, the man that Winslow replaced, uh, died and went crazy. He he went stark raven mad talking about how there's there's some magical force within the light and that it it carries salvation itself within it. Um, so when we see the gull sort of interrupting him when he's trying to, you know, be the master of his own domain is very much not appreciated by him because to him, this is another one of old, you know, fucking Captain Ahab's stories here. Just come to, to interrupt him when he's at his most vulnerable. Oh, during that part where he keep, tells him to keep re-mopping, like he says, his language, like I said, is always so over the top. Um, there was, there was language that I wrote down in, particular where he he was like oh the floor is clean and he's like it's not tis begrimed and bedabbled <laughs> oh begrimed this is so good it's, it's like comedic it's the movie is so bleak and and feels like again it's so just cruel to the senses it makes you just crave warmth and then there's these weird moments of comedic relief where you're just like where does this guy get off the you know no one talks like this right and like i i actually found that that scene was where it like first really introduces like masculinity and like those feels where you know uh tom is really like treating winslow very poorly and belittling him and emasculating him and winslow is like complaining about this being woman's work and how he really doesn't want to do like these feminine chores and stuff but eventually relents yeah and he said something to the effect of like i didn't come here to be a housewife <laughs> yeah, so we're we're at the point of it's it's dinner again, um, and Winslow seems to like have taken a shine to Tom. He pours a drink, and he really insists. He's like, "Okay, you gotta call me by my name. It's Ephraim Winslow." And they have two weeks left on this job, right? And he's like, "You know, for the last two weeks, call me by my name. It's Winslow." Yeah, and we should say, to this point, like, we have been freely using the names Wake and Winslow this entire time. We did not know the characters' names up until this point. Like, in my notes, I just have them referred to as Willem and Arpat, because we, we don't have a single name. At this point, we come to realize that their names are uh, Wake and Winslow. And as you said, uh, Wake is sort of taking a shine to, to, to Winslow at this point and tells him that he's making high marks in his logbook. He says that his logbook is gospel. Like, what I write in here will define your career, so you're doing a great job. 
Um, mm-hmm. And he sort of starts to ask him about his backstory. And one thing that he asks is sort of like, why are you out here on this island doing this very difficult work? Uh, he notes that you're you're pretty as a picture and that you have eyes that are as bright as a lady. So he doesn't think that this work is really suited to him. Um, and then, yeah, he sort of talks about his backstory a little bit there. Yeah, so we get a bit about how Winslow before this was doing logging, which, you know, brings a certain point of clarity to that first nightmare he had of the logs in the water. So it's like, oh, okay, he was up in Canada around Hudson, Hudson's Bay, doing some logging and has switched careers for some reason. And my, I, I love how here is when, so Tom Wake, he uh, talks about being married to the light and to the lantern and how she makes an excellent quiet wife, you know? <laughs> yeah. And he had a, he had a family before he had a, a wife and I believe two kids at home and uh, he's now divorced. Yeah. He, he said he spent 13 Christmases at sea and that kind of takes a toll uh on on your marriage and he says yeah i'm i'm damn well wedded to this here light is what he says this this light is his bride for better or worse which again is how a lot of people talk about the sea in uh in seafaring mm-hmm. communities i mean as far as i've never been part of one i'm not like speaking from personal experience <laughs> here um yes and that really makes sense as we move into the second fortnight here so the second half of their stay on the island when winslow is you know, he, he's about to go to sleep. He's got, like, the scrimshaw beside him, you know, tucked into bed. and But he forgets his smokes. So he goes into the machine room and, I guess, like, creeps up the stairs and starts spying through this graded flooring that's at the top of the lighthouse. So the top of the lighthouse has, like, its individual room, but the floor of it is this metal grating so you can see through. And clearly above Tom on his watch is masturbating to the light and there's like fluids dripping from above and like Winslow's like dodging them and then the weirdness begins and Winslow sees like a tentacle up there yeah like a kraken-esque like octopus tentacle just sort of writhing around up there in the hole and that scene ends rather abruptly. I will say the third masturbation scene of this movie, and there are more to come, <laughs> believe you me. If you thought three oh, masturbation yes. scenes was enough for this movie, uh, it's not. But anyway, it, it ends rather abruptly. We just kind of cut to the to the next day. Um, there's there's more problems with the cistern. He fixed it already earlier in the movie. Um, oh, yeah, the fucking, like, gross, dirty, like, mud gush water coming out of that out yeah (laughs) yeah and so he goes to investigate and he finds that there's a a seagull like drowned in the cistern like it's dead or dying we don't really know but and dying it's definitely dying okay because it kind of like croaks out a little like yeah and then we're sort of i think maybe meant to wonder as the audience like is that the gull that's been bothering him this whole time but no, that gull shows up. That gull lands on top of the cistern and sort of starts to squawk at him. And uh, oh, it, it, laughs it attacks at him. And it attacks him. It like lunges toward him and like sort of starts to peck at him. And Winslow has fucking had enough. Like, <laughs> and and he straight up grabs this gull by the neck, like like Hulk and Loki, and just bashes this thing on the side of the cistern just like pinatas it 
to death. This this gull is like a bag of blood at this point. Like it's it's done. Uh, yeah, he just beats it against the stone of the cistern like again and again and again. And I mean, we can only wonder like is Wake watching up from like the lighthouse and ding 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 yes he totally is and and in that shot like he takes the gull and like tosses it to the ground and there's this long shot of like the camera panning up all the way to the lighthouse and we just see the weather vane on top of the lighthouse and the wind changes immediately um like it and the wind changes to a northeasterly wind indicating that there's a storm on the way Oh, yes. So for me, this is where it brings us like I kind of like section the movie off into five different parts. <laughs> and the, the yeah, the change in wind direction is this kind of like taking into the third part where the men there, it's the last night before their relief is supposed to come and they're supposed to leave the island. And so before going into supper that night, the two of them go and board up the windows of the house, you know, uh, to protect the glass and pull up some, like, the crab and lobster pot to, like, get some dinner. And so it's sitting down to their final dinner together and Tom pours Winslow a drink. And, you know, Winslow kind of gives him this look and Tom's like, I won't take no for an answer because it's their last night, you know, might as well, kind of like a YOLO moment. And so not only do they take a drink, but have like three fucking shots in quick succession after like Winslow having not drank for all four of these weeks and like Wake probably having drank every single (laughs) night. (laughs) Yeah, and they like, they don't just like have a few drinks, like you said, they get instantly shmammered. They are like... (laughs) regaling each other with old stories he's like they're talking about like chicks that they banged in their past uh they at one point winslow asks wake if he feels shame when he lies with a woman um they're like singing drinking songs they're like they're dancing around um at one point winslow asks him why he hasn't been allowed to tend the light uh wake tells him you know soon enough you'll be tending a light of your own and Winslow says, well, why haven't I been able to, to tend the light before? And the mood changes immediately. They're not having a good time anymore. Wake is like, mm-hmm. that is my light. Again, don't come asking after my light. This one is mine. You go find yourself some other light. Um, again, very yeah. possessive. Yeah, he's very much like, I never let no man touch her. You know, very, like, protective of this light. And here's where I, like, this is when... Uh, like Thomas Wake like actually introduces himself and he's like oh the name's Thomas Thomas Wake you know you can call me Tom right and so finally we've learned both men's names yeah I suppose I got that wrong earlier I said that we learned both of their names on that on the the night of the second fortnight but it was actually we we only learned Willem Dafoe's name at this point And, and at this point we're like 45 minutes into the movie and we still have like an hour left oh god yeah (laughs) yeah And, like, uh, this is when I see, like, an interesting kind of, like, shift in uh, Winslow's character because he, I, I, like, I mean, at least I see it, but maybe he sees how he's like, oh, shit, if I continue on as, like, a wiki, I will become Tom. Like, you know, I'll go from being assistant to one day having my own lighthouse to, you know, having my own assistant 
and perhaps sees like a glimpse into his future of like the sad isolated like lonely crotchety old man that he might become doing this job yeah and i mean there's a whole lot of like identity pieces wrapped up in this entire narrative um there's there's then i i mean we'll move forward to the next morning there's so this is the day that they are meant to leave the island uh as i said there's an hour left in the movie so you can pretty much bet that that's not happening um (laughs) he wakes up super hungover like they are fucked after this night of debauchery um he notices that the uh, winslow that is notices that their bedpans are full of like shit like literal human shit so he takes them out into this there's a storm uh, as we mentioned the storm has, has now arrived he takes it out and goes to throw the contents of the bedpans into the sea and the wind immediately blows the shit back at himself and he screams to high heaven because he's just doused himself with literal human feces um yeah well uh, he must have forgotten the change in the wind direction like i'm sure the other <laughs> times he when he's got the wind like, blowing and... at his own face like <laughs> well by now it would have been routine you know emptying that way like throwing them out onto that coast but just like you know to add to the hangover to add to all of it and like uh, that's when me and my mom like burst out watching the like laughing watching this movie just like oh god this guy's poor fucking luck like it's his final day here and now he's smelling like piss and shit. So what happens next, Jay? Okay, so what, what does Winslow discover? So he's out there. He's doing his duties in the storm. Uh, again, just trying to get through this last day, waiting for the tender to arrive and take him home sweet home. And uh, he finds a mermaid. Like an actual fucking mermaid. We're not talking a scrimshaw this time. Like a, a woman with a fish's tail um, lying there on the rocks. She's all tangled up in the seaweed. Uh, here's your clue that this movie isn't exactly, I would say, feminist. Um, because the <laughs> first thing he does when he finds this unconscious mermaid lying there on the rock is just starts fondling her. Like, he, he touches her, her mermaid titty. Um, we, we get, we see her gills. We get close-ups of her gills and her mermaid labia. Yeah. Yeah. Didn't you have a fun fact about the mermaid vagina so yeah this the mermaid that they have in this movie so they're you know robert eggers and max eggers did a ton of research into you know mermaid lore they found that mermaids at one point you know because sirens and mermaids kind of have a similar like starting point in mythology Mm -hmm. um and it was always that you know sirens were going to uh call to the sailors pull them into the rocks to their doom Um, But they were going to do so under the pretense that, like, there was this beautiful woman lying on the rocks and she's going to she's going to bang you. She's going to have sex with you. It's going to be awesome. But you meet your death instead. Um, Originally, in mermaid mythology, mermaids had two tails. Um, They kind of split off the way that legs do. And actually, if you look at, like, the Starbucks logo, you'll see a, a mermaid with two tails. Um, Yes, she's distinctly a siren. Yeah. At at some point in the uh, in the Victorian era, mermaids came to just have one tail they kind of like toned down a oh. lot of the mermaid legends they became kind of more of a uh like contemporary our contemporary understanding of a mermaid is like a wonderful magical creature and not like a terrifying you know mm-hmm. sea bitch uh and so yeah we love the sea bitch so mermaids used to be understood to have somewhat more of a human anatomy um and at the time that they came to have a a tail a fish tail uh that sort of went away that kind of was no longer part of the mermaid mythology robert eggers decides nope this mermaid needs a vagina 
we need to see it. Uh, and so they actually modeled the fish vagina off of shark lavia. Lavia? Lavia. Oh. Pardon me. Um, yeah, so it's a silicone model that was made custom for this movie. But yeah, it's based on the equipment that sharks have so that this mermaid can still have a single tail but can be um, conceivably fuckable. Wow. Because a single-tailed wow. mermaid is accurate to the mythology from 1890s New England. Yes. And I like I love this scene because <laughs> in the background there is a foghorn wailing and then the mermaid she starts shrieking and then Winslow's screaming. There's so much noise going on and when Winslow finally gets back to the cabin, you know, Wake is like what were you? Wh why were you yelling out there, wasting your voice? What are you doing? <laughs> yeah, so he comes in. He's he swabs the quarters. He's he's back to swabbing the way he does. That silly boy. He's always swabbing. Oh yeah. Um, they go out to wait for the tender uh, to arrive to pick them up, and the storm is just bellowing, and they're standing there out on the rocks, and it just this thing is not coming. Yeah, as Winslow says, you know, very sad and dejected. They didn't. Home. Yeah. And at at this point, the storm is in full force. And that brings me into part number four of the movie, which is the storm. Yeah. So now at this point, they're in survival mode. Um, they thought that they were going to get to leave, but the tender just never arrived for them. And like, there's this real sense of guilt and shame, I think, because like for Winslow, at least he kind of debased himself. He agreed to drink on the pretense that this was going to be their last night there and you know there's nothing left to lose and now he's kind of stuck here in this environment with uh with wake where you know like what do we do we're just we kind of got to wait this thing out yeah and this man has been traumatized like he goes and like continues doing his work like shoveling the coal into the fire for the machinery and like you know has a bottle of alcohol alcohol there with him and like you know, manages to resist drinking on the job for this first night. Uh, but that doesn't last too long when Wake comes in and kind of shatters the rhythm that he's in by saying the provisions are spoiled. You know, yeah, all the of their got food, like, that, the damp got to them, you know? And so, oh shit, you know, their relief didn't show up. They're stuck on this rock for even longer. And now Winslow's being told that, oh, fuck, their food stores have spoiled. Yeah. He also, it's pretty much at this point where Wake informs him, you know, he's like, okay, well, the tender just didn't come yesterday. Maybe we, you know, just maybe we missed it. Maybe we were so hungover that it came and left without us, which like we understand does not make sense because there would be new wikis here to take care of the lighthouse. So that's, mm -hmm. but Wake informs him that it has been weeks since they missed the tender. That wasn't yesterday. He says, weeks, Winslow. It's been weeks since we missed that tender. Yeah, and Winslow's like, oh, it's only been one day. And he's like, one day? No! Like, and, uh, like, this is such an interesting kind of timeline disagreement because, like, as audience viewers, we're not actually sure who's been keeping track of time properly. So, like... Who's right? How long have they been on this island? Like, And I mean, these are the seeds of doubt that were sort of uh, sowed when Wake is telling him that he didn't clean the floors and Winslow is saying, I, I damn well did. And so they just have 
like objective disagreements about reality kind of consistently throughout this movie um and and wake also tells him there was a, an instance hey back in 75 there was a wiki who was stranded on the island for seven months because the storm died out on the mainland but out here on the water it was it, the waters were just too vengeful and so this there's a guy who was once stranded on this island for seven months basically saying Jesus. there is no telling how long we're gonna be here bud and to me that's why i said i said this in the intro episode like it's kind of hard to believe that this movie isn't about covid like they, right? they shot this in 2018 like they had no idea covid was coming and it feels watching it with the knowledge of like what lockdown felt like that is what it feels like going through something that you don't think you'll be able to survive getting to the end of the allotted time and then just being told like no it's going to be like 12 times longer than this actually like yeah, yeah because like their stay on the island is four weeks right which is two kind of quarantines uh and like even just at the end of like one quarantine of like two weeks you're like okay i'm going insane i'm super bored and like at this point this is the 1890s so they have no entertainment whatsoever like there are no books there to read except for like the manual and the logbook which like winslow doesn't have access to that logbook <laughs> so like only wake can read it you know and there is literally nothing to do except do their work sleep masturbate and drink and that's it drink they do at one point uh wake reveals that they have actually extra rations so they're buried in a chest out in you know out on the rock so we're gonna go dig it up and the rations are just more liquor it's just like 10 more bottles <laughs> of hard liquor um they get super drunk at one point uh robert pattinson's character who we understand to have a certain name is crawling on the floor this man is more wasted than certainly i've ever been oh, in yes. my life shit face and he starts talking about his foreman at the logging company winslow and how he rags on him just like how wake does yeah and like uh right before that is when winslow or like robert pattinson's character who we know to be winslow at this point starts questioning tom wake and starts questioning his stories because wake before he had said he broke his leg and that's why he had a limp but now he's saying that it seized up because of scurvy and he starts gaslighting winslow being like oh no you must have misheard and that's when they get sloppy drunk and as he's crawling across the floor mumbling to himself about like winslow blah 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 your dog your dog <laughs> uh yeah, he, he calls him a dog, and that's to... very hurtful to him. Yeah, and he again starts to question Tom about, you know, oh, you're saying you and your sailors survived on grass, but how did you eat grass without teeth? Because the teeth were falling out because of the scurvy, and blah, blah, blah. It gets them into quite a row, and <laughs> I love how they just have this, this kind of, like, really drunk moment that is so relatable where Wake leans in and goes, what? And Winslow goes, what? And they just go what? back and forth going, what? 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 Like, burst out laughing, and, like, Winslow proclaims, he's like, I want a steak! You know, he he's fucking done. He's like, if I had a steak... A rare, bloody, meaty steak. Oh, boy. 
If I had a steak, well, I could fuck it. <laughs> and Tom takes this as like, he's like, you're saying you don't like my cooking? <laughs> you know? And this, so, uh, so right after the steak and getting insecure about his cooking, that's when Tom Wake says the monologue that you opened this podcast with and curses uh at winslow and that's like a hilarious moment when after doing this like big shakespearean monologue winslow's just like fine i like your cooking (laughs) yeah and it is like the like when we watched this the first time we were just slack jawed because you're not expecting the sentences to go on this long like he starts off by yelling at him and he he yells hark trite like he is summoning the son of poseidon which you assumes was salty old sea captain like this yeah. is probably the worst thing you can do or say to someone and like wishes death mm-hmm. upon him and for his body to rot and for him to become forgotten by everyone including the sea um for saying that he didn't like his cooking there's also the line is perfectly delivered where he goes, well, you like my lobster. I know you like my lobster. You're fond of me, lobster. I've seen it. He he is informing him like, you know, I know uh, that you love my like, lobster. I, I love their little argument because it's the most domestic thing between them where it's like, but you you like my cooking, right? You know, and like Wake gets so insecure about like, his cooking and this kind of like quote-unquote womanly domestic pursuit yeah he is uh he's not happy that (laughs) that he doesn't like his cooking to say the least um and yeah like like says says neptune should strike you dead for not being fond of his lobster which is harsh but i mean it really leads into what happens next which is you know after they go to bed, like, Winslow takes, like, the opportunity to, like, sneak up to the lighthouse, take, like, a butter knife that he had, you know, tucked away in his pocket earlier to try and break the lock, totally fails to break into the top of the lighthouse, then goes to sneak up on Tom, who's sleeping, to steal the keys. But as he's, like, reaching over to take the keys, kind of, like, pauses maybe like remembers how like tom was cursing him for not liking his food and is going to like cut his fucking throat when tom wakes up and catches him in the act yeah and he do you remember what he says at this point because uh uh, winslow (laughs) has his shoes like tucked into the back of his massive pockets of his overalls so that he doesn't make any noise as he sneaks across across the the floor and Wake yeah. says, he wakes up, sees what's happening, sees him, like, standing over him, like, with a so knife. close, with a <laughs> knife, and says, that's a queer way to wear your shoes. <laughs> like, effectively diffuses the situation by, like, completely ignoring Winslow's, like, aggression and just being like, no. Nah. Nah, you're you're not gonna cut me today, boy. Like, and, and Winslow replies by telling him that he's a miserable old man who isn't even human anymore. Yeah, like, <laughs> like, like Winslow is. I love that line. Like, you ain't even human no more. You yeah, know, been working away from folk for so long, like so isolated that Tom is just like, 
unbelievable. Like, this this man is not a man anymore. Like, anyone in their right mind would have been fucking scared out of their wits to be awoken by someone leaning over them with a knife. Yeah, and so, like, Winslow more or less just backs up, and it's just like, oh, I wasn't doing nothing, and he goes back to work. <laughs> he is sloppy. He is sloshed. He is not doing a good job. He's wheeling the wheelbarrow out to the shed, and... When he goes out to the shed, he takes it upon himself to to pleasure himself once again. This is now the fourth masturbation scene in this movie. And (laughs) it is wild. He is uh, sitting out there in the shed. He's got the little scrimshaw with him, the mermaid. He's caressing that thing. He's he's jerking it. He's uh, like remembering the mermaid and her merlabia. Um, He's thinking about a dead guy. Oh, yes, he's thinking about a dead guy in the water. Like, this is also interspliced with a scene of him pulling up the crab pot. You know, it's interspliced with scenes of the lantern light and, like, drowning. And when he, like, climaxes and, like, shrieks. Not just, like, cries, but, like, shrieks. He throws the scrimshaw and it breaks in half. And then, like, man falls to the floor is crawling like army crawling his <laughs> yeah. way like half naked across the floor and like stabs the pieces of the scrimshot with the knife yeah he hates this thing so do you want to know a fun fact about this scene yes this was shot on day one of the shoot this is like the first thing that they shot in the movie and what? Uh, Robert Egger says, on day one, we shot Rob masturbating in the shed. It's the very first thing we shot. And Rob really, really went for it. The film's director recalls. <laughs> and you know, it was inspiring. Oh my God. I like, I call it the epic masturbation scene because like, it is so intense. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a lot. And this is like really one of the points in the movie where like maybe more than any other, we are not sure what is real, what is false, what is uh, in Winslow's imagination, what is Winslow, what is Winslow remembering and what is he imagining in this scene? There's, there's the mermaid. There is, he he pulls up uh, the lobster trap and it has a severed head in it with one eye. Yeah, the decapitated head in the lobster trap. You're like, is, is that real? Is it not? But like right next i'm like does he tell tom about finding the head or like do they both just decide you know what this is the fucking night to like down bottles of alcohol like yeah we go right from this (laughs) (laughs) we go like right from this epic masturbation scene to like the two of them like literally nursing these bottles like fucking like they're getting iced or something like yeah yeah (laughs) getting iced yeah (laughs) Yeah, oh, God. and so they are they're dancing jigs, they're like up on the tables, uh, and they're they're doing like furiously fast like uh logging camp jigs and whatnot. And then it's another smash cut to them like slow dancing and like humming, Oh my god, it's so romantic. Humming like, like songs of lost love. Um, yeah, it's and they're, beautiful. They're like holding each other, slowly dancing. And then they pull apart and lock eyes with each other and pull in closer and they are getting ever closer and closer and like their eyes close and their heads tilt to the side and their mouths open and then they like shove each other apart and then it's like dukes up. They're like immediately like about to scrap. This 
I I kind of disagree because like this this is definitely like at first it's mutual, but like Tom like Tom Wake is clearly leaning in for that kiss. Like yeah, clearly okay, yeah. going for the kiss. And I think it was Winslow who fucking reacts and is like, nope, yeet like shoves Tom off and is like, come on, dukes up. Dukes yeah. up. And they fight. Like and- they fucking fight. Like, an old-timey, too, like, you know, people just don't fight like this anymore with their fists out, like, two feet away from their face, and, like... <laughs> like, it is so hyper-masculine. It is ridiculous. So then we get uh, another hard cut. They're they're no longer fighting, and now they are, like, lounging together. They are decidedly cuddling. Like, that is... Uh, yeah. Yeah, they are... It's, like tender moment to even more tender moment to fight to tender moment like yeah and And like they're they're getting they're getting very intimate and like comfortable with each other and you know winslow's talking about trust and he's like can i trust you tom i can trust you i i i I trust you and (laughs) tom's like oh no 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 no, you don't no you don't <laughs> and like is rejecting that trust and he's like oh do, don't go bring in your guilty conscience like a, a, a guilty conscience is boring and and ta- and winslow does not listen to this advice at all um, oh not at all wake cautions him don't spill your beans to me like keep, oh do not but, spill your beans but spill his beans spill his beans and he does and he says thomas and he says yes and he says no i'm thomas and he goes no i'm thomas he says no i'm thomas i lied and so winslow the man we've been calling winslow informs us that his real name is tommy tommy howard coincidence both of these men are men are named thomas and um he tells a story about his past at the at the logging camp where he had a foreman who keeps ragging on him much in the same way calling that Tom him a dog. Does, calling him a dog. And he doesn't like this man to the point that he considers murdering him, like bashing him in the back of the head with his logging tools. And he doesn't do it. He does not. He wants to make it very clear that he didn't <laughs> do it. But at that exact moment that he was considering mur- murdering his foreman, his foreman falls into the water and is struggling to swim among all the logs. And if you've ever seen footage of, of log drivers from back in this time... This is how they would transport logs. They would literally ride like massive piles of logs down the river. So if this guy falls in, like it's not a good scene. And uh, the guy, the man is screaming for help. Uh, he he refuses to give him that help. He says, I watch him get swallowed by them logs. Um, and at the end of the day, this man dies. This man is real, the real Ephraim Winslow. And he says, I pack up my kit as if it were mine. And I've got a fresh slate. He has stolen his boss's identity. Sort of a Don, uh, a Don Draper narrative for those who are familiar with Mad Men. Yeah, and I, I find this really interesting because at the end of this story, like Tommy, you know, our Winslow, Tommy looks directly at the camera. This is only the second time that like, you know, they kind of break that fourth wall. The first time was when they're standing like American Gothic at the beginning of the film. And he, he breaks that fourth wall and asks the camera directly, how else am I going to find respectable work? You know, he steals the foreman's identity because, you know, he's going on like he's like, oh, you know, Tommy Howard had no prospects. You know, he's not going anywhere in life. 
But now Winslow, you know, Foreman Winslow, now he's got prospects. And so this leads to a moment. Um, Wake does not appreciate him spilling his beans. Uh, <laughs> at some point in telling this this sad tale, um, Winslow slash Tommy Howard, whatever we're meant to call him, um, has lost track of where Wake went. He is sort of just like not there when he turns his head. And he just hears the disembodied voice of Wake from somewhere in the lighthouse go, Why'd you spill your beans, Tommy? Why'd you spill your beans? <laughs> <laughs> and, like, his voice echoes through, like, the buildings. And uh, he goes outside to find him, and there's this... I don't know how else to describe it other than a tableau. It's sort of a moment that... We just see, and it doesn't really, it's not really clear how this fits into the narrative or where or when in the story this happens, but um, Wake is holding Winslow by the wrist and, like, staring a light into his eyes, which looks very much like the light of a lighthouse. And stark naked, by the way. Like, Wake is yeah naked as the day he was born in this, like, Olympian like athletic lunge pose holding him by the wrist capturing him with this light um, yeah it's a very like Hellenistic kind of classical kind of painting because uh, uh, Winslow Tommy was like rolling over a body on the ground and it turns out to be his body and then you know it, behind him is old Tom and you know his like light in his eyes is shining down upon Winslow's eyes and it's this very strange kind of godlike posing, I guess. And there's more to say about this later on. But there's a, a painting called Hypnosis from 1904 by Sasha Snyder. Sorry, Sasha oh. Schneider. Um, if you look it up, that's very much the inspiration for this scene. It is a man holding another man by the wrist and staring uh, a lighthouse-like beam into the eyes of this other man. Um, uh, oh yeah Sasha Schneider made these symbolist paintings that were um, mythical in nature and, and very homoerotic in nature and so they've sort of recreated that with this piece it's even in black and white by the way well he sees he finally sees his truth and like that's what I kind of see it as like you know and until then old Tom has kind of been able to keep his eyes closed to Winslow's like transgressions and his secrets and the mysteries oh. that he's kept but that's why he's so mad about him spilling his beans, right? <laughs> he's like, no, like, now I have to see you for the truth, you know, that you're a liar, that you, you know, watched a man die, you know, I have to see your guilty conscience and see it laid bare. And, like, the light, for me, is that kind of illumination of the truth. And and so they... At this point, Winslow decides he needs to escape. He goes to go get the, the lifeboat, the dory, from the shed and take it out to the sea. And Wake comes screaming out of nowhere and he's brandishing an axe and he says, don't leave me. And he he smashes up the dory with the axe. Their only way off the island feasibly until the tender comes is is no more. It's obliterated by this axe. And then he goes chasing him across the island with the axe. It is truly the wild, like the physical performances <laughs> in this movie are truly wild because they're like galloping, I would say, like sidestepping around the island. Oh, yeah. This and this is rough terrain. 
this is not easy terrain like parts of this movie like these physical performances are almost like cartoonish in nature like the the scene earlier where winslow sneaks up on wake with the knife and this like they sort of evoke like looney tunes vibes like they're they're comically like arched over when they sneak and they're like yeah making themselves very big when they when they chase yeah like this uh the scene with the axe actually gave me like the shining vibes of like you know here comes jack like chasing like his son through the hedge maze yeah. you know loping along with the axe but uh it, tom he just you know wake like he just uh like puts buries the axe in the kitchen table you know, doesn't even, like, brandish it at Winslow inside the house or anything. No, instead, he goes about confusing Winslow and, like, essentially, like, charismas this man down and is, like, questioning how long they've been there. And he's, made, he's like, you know, maybe this is all just a figment of your imagination, Tommy. Maybe you're wandering through the Canadian woods and this is all just a fever dream. None of it's real. He, yeah, and he says, how long have we been on this this rock? Five weeks? Two days? He says, who are you again? Are you Ephraim Winslow? Are you Tommy Howard? Um, and he also says that you're the one who smashed up the lifeboat and chased me with the axe. Yeah, like... Gaslights him. Yeah, is he gaslighting him, or have we been, you know, lied to as the audience with the scene? Like, I, we're really not sure at this point. Like, who is more trustworthy, the perspective of Winslow or the perspective of Wake? We don't, we just don't know. I, I want to move quickly through the last few scenes of this movie, just because we said we were going to summarize this movie in, like, 15, 20 minutes, and it's been an hour <laughs> and 10 minutes. Um... So okay, okay, let's <laughs> let's go. We've so got the, at this point they they go back to drinking together again because this is what they do. They realize we're out of drink, so they decide we're going to drink turpentine. So we're going to drink yeah. like oil. Like we are going to fuel ourselves with the very thing that we use to fuel the lantern, and um, that's what we're gonna drink. And this is what happens when you leave men alone. By the way, if you leave two men oh, together yes. for long <laughs> enough, this will happen. So they get shit-faced, <laughs> they are drinking at the bottom of the lighthouse, they are drinking now under the kitchen table that has the axe still in it, and the storm breaks through the window and totally floods the cabin with water. Yeah, the so cabin everything is, is in a disarray. Yeah, like it is filled yeah. with water. Um, Winslow finds the logbook, the, the logbook which Wake told him earlier that you're getting, you know, top-notch marks in my logbook. And oh god, it actually says like, "Hey, this guy is always drinking on the job. He neglects his duties. Um, he's kind of a piece of shit." And the company should actually fire him without pay. They should they should sever him immediately. Um, so yeah. he... and understandably, Winslow is outraged. He goes off on Tom like he's calling him a liar. He's saying he's tired of his shit. But then Winslow like gets down on his knees and begs. He, like, begs for forgiveness and mainly, like, he takes this pose of supplication of, like, being on his knees, lowering his head and raising his hand up, you know, which usually you would do, like, this is, like, an ancient Greek kind of thing where you would, like, kneel in front of someone and, like, kneel at their feet and, like, raise your hand to touch their chin as, like, a pose of supplication and begging. And he begs to be shown the light. 
That's all he wants. Like, yeah. Winslow, like, he's learned his life is ruined, like, everything. And he's like, just show me the fucking light. I want to see that lantern. Yeah, and we were told earlier that there seems to be something connecting the light to salvation, right? So he's spilled his beans at this point. He, like, Wake knows what he's done. He is also, by this point, accused Wake of killing his old junior wiki. Um, so he, oh, yeah. he, you know, he believes that the severed head that he found in the crab trap is uh, the former wiki. And that it, that's, we as the audience, I believe, are, are to maybe think that the head and the former wiki and the gull are all the same person the same soul trapped mm -hmm. on this island um there's another great monologue from robert pattinson here where he yells at the old man and tells him exactly what's wrong with him he says you ain't the president and you ain't my father he's got like this great new england accent going oh, on by the way so good i'm sick of your laughing your snoring and your goddamn farts your damned <laughs> goddamn farts <laughs> God damn your farts. You smell like piss. You smell like jism, like rotten dick, like curdled foreskin. <laughs> like hot onions fucked a farmyard shithouse. And I'm sick of your smell. I'm sick of it, you goddamn drunk. It is, uh, and it goes on much longer than that. That is like a tenth of it. It's and And, <laughs> and what's Wake's response? Like... Oh, you, you sure got away with words. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> These men are done with each other. At this point, now that sort of the logbook has been discovered and everything is out in the open, they, they sort of have a, a fight with each other. Um, it seems clear mm -hmm. that, you know, Winslow sort of has murderous intent at this point. And yeah. Uh, and this is when uh, Wake pulls out the... He's like, I, I watched you kill that gull yeah. and blames him for the change in the winds, the change in their luck, you know, blames Winslow for the storm, saying that it's his fault, and he calls him a dog. And that's the final straw. Yeah, and so at this point, Winslow is going to get on top of him and just beat the absolute shit out of him, just pummel him. Um, but as he's on top of him, his his form is changing. He is the, he is the, the old man that he knows. He is changing into uh a younger man which is you know it, it could be uh a winslow it, it could be the real winslow it could be a young willem dafoe um and the form of the mermaid until finally he becomes like this crusted like you know cockle shelled like davy jones looking motherfucker yeah he becomes triton it's not Triton. I'll tell you about it later. It's not quite. Really? Yeah. Oh, but shit. Ooh. It is a mythical form uh, among, uh, in that, in that vein. But. Oh, damn. He becomes this, yeah. like, Poseidon, Triton-looking motherfucker. <laughs> and Davy Jones reminiscent. Um, yeah, and, and Winslow just goes to town, like, beating on him, like, stopping just short of killing him. And it, Because he and says, then... you're killing me. Uh, yeah, and he's pathetic and... in that moment. He is he is oh, uh, howling. So pathetic. Yeah. Yeah. And so then we get the scene of Winslow standing over Tom, like nudging him with his foot, like saying bark, like bark. And uh, he does. And yeah. Tom like curled up on the ground, starts like barking and woofing and as whimpering. Winslow's like, uh, yeah, and whimpering as Winslow's, like, standing dominant over him, like, finally getting, like, the true upper hand. 
which like is such a reversal of roles like when wake dominated winslow for the first half of this movie more more than and now he's oh, yeah. going sadistic with it. He's he pulls out a leash and starts walking him around and giving him commands. And um, eventually, he leads him out to the yard where he's he's dug a large hole and urges his his dog to get in there. And Wake just kind of surrender. He just flops down into the hole. And as you know, he's lying in this kind of makeshift grave. Like winslow starts shoveling dirt onto him and wake starts monologuing again and this is where i am outraged that willem dafoe <laughs> did not get any nominations for like best actor at any of the major awards because he delivers again another shakespearean monologue that is rife with like literary references and things and i'm going to talk more about this monologue later like this i'll call it the mud monologue in particular but he is mm. being buried alive and mud is being shoveled into his face. It is filling his mouth. He is choking on it as he delivers this monologue. And I'm not saying, like, that's happening to the character. Like, that is happening to the actor. You are seeing Willem Dafoe, like, swallow dirt while delivering this monologue, like, from memory. Like, I'm astounded. This is, like, one of the craziest things I've ever seen an actor do. And it's beautiful. Yeah. Like, it, it is beautiful and heartbreaking and it's this monologue about like the light and and so the the last thing he says in this monologue wake says you'll be punished for for what you've done he essentially chides him for his his pride and his arrogance uh that of winslow and, and wake tells him that you're going to be punished and that would appear to be wake's last words um winslow goes inside and he finally has the keys that will take him up to the to the upper room where the light is. But Wake's got one last push left in him. <laughs> yeah. He rises from the grave, comes back into the house, <laughs> has the axe, and axes Winslow in the shoulder. Winslow, of course, quickly turns around, dashes Tom with a canister, takes the axe, and turns the axe upon Tom. And we assume murders the shit out of him. And, you know, is covered in blood splatters. Yeah, and, and when Wake rushes in, he yells, the light belongs to me. And then this, he does not have the upper hand in this fight. The, the axe gets turned on him pretty quickly. Um, and yeah, Winslow slash Tommy Howard gives him like one one-handed chop in, in center mass with the axe. And that uh, that is the last we see of, of Mr. Thomas Wake. Yes, next we have Winslow as he crawls up the metal staircase of the lighthouse he does you know, toast there is... with his with his uh suppliant soul toast before he goes up oh there. yeah he gives him oh, he nice. gives him one final toast and then he decides to crawl up the steps <laughs> to the light yeah and i love this kind of crawling up scene because it like it, you can hear the beating of the machinery in the tower like, it sounds like a beating heart. Which is how we started the movie. I mean, back, if you remember an hour and a half ago when I when we talked about the start <laughs> of this movie, uh, it, it's this rhythmic machinery sound that I said at the beginning, it sounds like trudging, but it, it comes back at the end and he is crawling into the heart of, of the lighthouse. Um, and he gets up into that upper room and the light opens to him. There's a glass, it's, it's surrounded on all sides by like glass panels. It's like a glass octagon or hexagon or something. And one of the panels opens to him and the light shines directly on his face. And he reaches into the light, and we have this beautiful shot, and we don't, we the audience, don't see what's inside the lantern. 
but uh, Tommy Boy clearly does. We watch his face direct on as he is, you know, kind of in awe, in inspiration, but then, like, screaming out in horror. We're not really, like, it's yeah. a total complex of emotions. He, he starts off laughing like someone who just found buried treasure or something like that. Like, he is in absolute joy and ecstasy, and then the the picture becomes more distorted, and so does the sound as his shrieks of laughter turn to screaming and just bellowing at the top of his lungs. Um, and clearly he can't handle what he's seen within the light. It, it was not the salvation he was looking for, not quite. And he falls all the way down the stairs, uh, down these long spiral staircase that, you know, that he carried that canister up earlier. And uh, mm -hmm. he falls to his death. That's That's it. He, and our done. final shot, yeah, our final shot is of Tommy Boy laid out naked on the rocks. He, like, to me it looks like his right eye is a barnacle, and there are gulls atop him, and they are pecking out his innards. Like, it's this very, like, Promethean yes. tableau. And it's our, like, second tableau. And not only are they, like insult to injury here not only are they picking out his guts and eating them they're shitting on him like you see <laughs> robert pattinson a bird shits on his chest they like abuse the actor so much in this movie oh god <laughs> with like, <laughs> the things that they put them through but yeah that's and that's the end of the movie it ends on that and we end with like a sea shanty playing over the credits um, Ta -da! And that's the end of the movie. The movie that we said we were going to take 15 minutes to 20 minutes to summarize. We we took an hour and 20. Oh, hey, we'll be more yeah, concise on as we go. episodes, everyone. If you're still with hey, us, who thank knows? you. But... Yeah. <laughs> um, it, was, it was a wild movie. There are some behind-the-scenes notions that I wanted to talk about with this, or or some details. Um, so there, there are a couple of different pieces that inspired this story. Um... One of the main ones is a unfinished story by Edgar Allan Poe called The Lighthouse, but it's like The Light-House. Oh. Um, it's about a, a single wiki who is uh, isolated on a lighthouse island in 1790s Norway. It started being written in 1849. It was Edgar Allan Poe's last story, and it wasn't finished. He died before he, he finished it. Um, but it was all about the oh, isolation shit. that this this person was feeling. It was written in diary entries. Um and it, it was all about how he was he was starting to go crazy being isolated on this rock in the middle of the ocean and he was starting to hear things within the walls um but it was never finished it's been adapted a number of times and then another story that caught the director's attention because he was doing research on trying to adapt uh adapt edgar Allan poe's story um there's a story from wales in 1801 that actually happened where uh two wikis were attending a lighthouse on an island they were both named thomas and one of them died in a freak accident. And keep in mind, this is this is a true story. Um, Thomas Howell and Thomas Griffith, they were publicly known to disagree with each other and to quarrel. Um, so Griffith died of a freak accident. I, I couldn't find what he actually died from, but by all accounts, mm. it's a freak accident. And so Howell realizes he has to figure out what he's going to do with this body while he's stranded alone on this island. And keep in mind, this is 1801. They don't just have like a phone that they can just like call back to the island and be like, Hey, the other guy's dead. So he is living out the rest of his like shift, his placement on this Island by himself. 
he realizes that the body is beginning to decay and he can't just throw it in the sea or else he's going to be accused of murder. So he builds a makeshift coffin for the corpse and lashes it to a shelf of rock outside. Um, the winds start blowing and they start blowing the box apart. And the corpse's arm falls out of the box and the wind is blowing this arm around in a way that it seems like it's beckoning. And uh, Thomas Griffith goes insane, essentially, from being stuck on this island with this dead body of this man he hates with his arm beckoning him around. And uh, uh, by all accounts, people who knew him um, did not recognize him after this experience. This changed him forever as a person. Um, and so that's those are the two stories that sort of most inspired this. Um, and then also, there's, there's some real connections to mythology here. Obviously, the sort of folklore of of mermaids and things like that and and of sirens that as we talked about sort of beckon sailors to the rocks and tempt them to you know follow their their baser instincts which will ultimately lead to their peril and doom and and a watery grave um there mm -hmm. are those elements and we talked about the mermaids more earlier um winslow as you said his fate sort of resembles Prometheus, Prometheus being a, a titan in Greek mythology who defied the gods by stealing fire from them and giving it to humans. In some versions of the story, that leads to the creation of human civilization. He's sort of known as the, the father of uh, liberal arts. Um, Prometheus is chained to a rock and an eagle comes and eats his liver every day. And every night it grows back and the cycle begins again. The eagle comes back the next day and eats his liver up again. So in the Western classical tradition, Prometheus is, is sort of a symbol of human striving um, and the quest for knowledge and the risk of overreaching or unintended consequences. That's Prometheus. <laughs> and That's uh, Winslow. That is definitely Winslow uh, stealing the secrets of the lantern's light for his own curiosity. You know, that hubris of doing anything to get to the light and is punished in a similar way, except instead of an eagle and his liver, it's gulls uh, and his innards. Uh-huh. There's also, um, there's another character in this story, obviously. There's Wake. You mentioned Triton, and so did he in the story. Um, he's mm. based on Proteus, who is an early Greek god who serves Poseidon and tells prophecies. Um, he is sometimes called the god of elusive sea change. He has a rather mermaid-like form. He looks like what we consider mermaids to look like. Like, he has a human torso and a fish's uh, tail and, and, you know, bottom half. Um, he can foretell the future, but, uh, in several cultures telling, he will change his shape to avoid telling the future. He doesn't want to do that. And he will only answer to people who are capable of capturing him. So keep that in mind when we talk about his mud monologue. So Protean has, has connotations of flexibility, versatility, and adaptability. And in some tellings of the story, he is Poseidon's son, which makes him Triton's brother. So when he's summoning mm -hmm. Triton earlier, uh, we may, you know, you could interpret this person as being actual Proteus himself or just a character sort of derived from him. Um, and that mud monologue, I wrote it down. So this is as he's being buried alive. And keep in mind what we now know about Proteus and Prometheus. Oh, shit. He, as... Uh, uh, Willem Dafoe is having mud shoved on his face. Oh, what protean forms swim up from men's minds and melt in hot Promethean plunder, scorching eyes with divine shames and horrors, and cast them down to Davy Jones. 
and others still blind, yet in it see all divine graces, and to fiddler's green scent, where no man is suffered to want and toil, but is ancient, mutable, and unchanging as she who girdles round the globe. So he is essentially, at this moment, captured. He is being buried alive in this hole. It kind of looks like it's the end of Old Wake. And he's directly invoking Proteus and Prometheus and Promethean mm-hmm. plunder. Basically, this this striving, this foolish, you know, uh, uh, hubris that you've taken on. And specifically that you will be melt, you will be melted and your eyes will be scorched with divine shames and horrors. Um, basically describing, he's like, this is what's going to happen to you. And again, his last words that is. at that point that we believe are, you will be punished. And that's his, that's his uh, protean sort of um, uh, 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 prophecy that he gives us. And, and it comes through, right? Like Winslow is scorched. You know, his eyes scorched by whatever he sees inside the lantern and his fall from, you know, the tall heights that he's managed to reach with discovering that and is punished. Like, it all comes true. I was really interested to learn, too, that Proteus has that shape-shifting element to him because that makes that last fight scene make a lot more sense where he is alternately uh, old man Wake as we know him and then he turns into the form of the original Winslow, and then he turns into the form of the mermaid, um, and then he turns into old man Proteus himself, the the old man of the sea, as he's known. And It also yeah. makes sense with how he keeps changing the story about his leg, you know, from one explanation of why he's got this limp to a different explanation. It sort of begs the question, too, as to, hey, was this mermaid Tom the whole time? I don't know if we want to read it that way or not, but it's certainly a way you could read it. It certainly is. (laughs) Oh, damn. (laughs) Uh, The directors... So I should say this was directed by Robert Eggers. His brother is Max Eggers, and the two brothers uh, co-wrote the the story together, the screenplay. Um, They they straight up say that everything in this story is open to interpretation. There is no answer to any of the questions that we are asking, and... They say that the the story is about the questions that it arises rather than any sort of answers. Mm. What did you think? What did what did, what was interesting to you? Oh god, it was all interesting. I really I do really love the association between the mermaid and the lantern light. Yeah. You know, and this siren and that, you know, the uh, lighthouse light is what, you know, draws the sailors in toward land, whereas, you know, the mermaid or the siren is the inverse of that. And, you know, the lighthouse uses light, whereas the siren uses sound. And I, like, I, I think it's very interesting that those inverse, but also that the mermaid, when we do see her in the film, her scales are actually pretty similar in, like, aesthetic to the glass of the lantern so i thought they really like brought out that association and like kind of that you know drawing out that taboo-ness of searching for these kind of mythical like saviors i guess or like you know the light is more of a savior whereas the siren is more of a doom symbol yeah and even yeah even after winslow like frees himself from the side the siren during his like epic masturbation scene and like breaking the scrimshaw he's then still under kind of like the spell or the enchantment of the light 
Yeah, and and like we had noted that this movie is all about desire and when it is, you know, there's there's all sorts of there's desire in all forms, right? There is uh like heaps of sexual desire. There is the desire for salvation and for forgiveness, it seems. And then there is like murderous rage, which is, I, I suppose, a form of desire within itself, right? A desire to just do bad things. Um, it's really a, a theme that kind of informs yeah. absolutely everything about this. Yeah, there's also the desire for like secrecy and to, you know, hoard things and to keep things to oneself. But there's that desire also to to not be lonely, you know, like, I I get the pervading feeling from Tom that, like, although he's, you know, hoarding this light to himself, he doesn't want to be alone there. You know, he doesn't just want to be with his light wife. You know, he <laughs> wants the company. <laughs> yeah, well, and I mean, I guess you can't talk about this movie without talking about the sort of, like, strained, tense relationship between the two leads here. One of the things that makes this movie compelling for me is... The, the sort of homoerotic tension that is like, I don't know if you can call it undertones or like overtones or what, it is all right there at the surface. For, for me, this movie is all about the tension that's kind of ever present in many masculine relationships. Um, mm -hmm. and, and for me, and I guess to tie this into the sort of themes of this podcast, it's about like the repression of men who may be curious about their potential to love or be intimate with other men. Um, I feel that there's a lot of, you know, like very much these characters seem to have some level of attraction to each other in some way, and they absolutely have no idea how to express that. Um, there, there are these moments of tenderness and like physical affection. And then like, there's one moment that might result in a kiss, but instead it, it results in a fight. Um, and I think like a lot of, I don't know, my experience is there's a lot of times where between men whether they are friends or whether they're more than friends or whether they don't like each other there's this sort of like undertone of like competition a lot of the time like men just kind of i in my experience and I, I know everyone's is going to be different but there's these mm -hmm. there's this expectation of masculinity right to not be vulnerable to maybe prove yourself as more dominant than the other and you know hopefully a lot of times people can overcome that but like oh I don't know. I've talked to a lot of, I know a lot of men who have trouble making friendships with other men. I'm one of them for that reason, that there is sort of like this weird amount of tension. I don't get along with dudes who are like alpha type dudes who need to like be proving that they're like bigger than you at every moment. Um, and I, yeah, I don't know. That's, that's one of the ways that I read this movie. Um, and, and I mean, the, the creators of the movie definitely agree with me. Um, when asked about the sort of queer undertones of the movie, specifically the interviewer used the words queer undertones um, and asked if they were something that was consciously discussed by the people on set. Willem Dafoe said, it's there. What's to talk about? It's a no-brainer. Um, Pattinson said it was pretty explicit in the script. The script said that the lighthouse looked like an erect penis. Um, uh, it definitely does. <laughs> yeah. It absolutely is. And and uh, Robert Eggers says that the whole thing is about power dynamics and it's about Willem's character pushing, 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 pushing. And there's this pent-up anger and pent-up erotic energy and pent-up smells. And it's about where's that breaking point and what happens when they meet that breaking point and how does alcohol play on all these dynamics? It's a oh, really God. interesting 
uh, examination of male relationships, whether friendships, enemyships, or or relationships, to me. The alcohol. Like, the alcohol. <laughs> like, it, the alcohol doesn't... Like, it, 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 it's at first, like, a barrier to their relationship because, you know, like... Tommy, like, refuses to engage that kind of bonding ritual of drinking together. And it goes into, instead of this, like, friendship, there's this weird supervision, surveillance, and, like, voyeurism that goes on as the two of them are just watching each other at these different points, like, either just overseeing the day and, like, the day's work, or when, you know, uh, Pattinson is, like, creeping on Willem Dafoe having like his first masturbation session and like watching you know peeping through a hole in the roof or when Dafoe is like watching Robert Pattinson have this like showdown with a gull you know <laughs> like there's these different levels of watching from a distance and my mom and I when we were watching this she was like you know what maybe it all would have been fine if they just didn't drink the alcohol like, I really do wonder if, you know, uh, Pattinson's character would have been totally fine if he hadn't had that drink on, you know, their last night there. Yeah, and it's it's a, it's something that, like, the old Tom pushes on him uh, earlier on, and he says, like, you know, have a drink with me. Um, he says that it's bad luck to leave a toast unfinished, by the way, when he offers up the toast. And there, that's like one of the five bad omens. Like, it's bad luck to kill a seabird. It's bad luck to leave a toast unfinished. Blah, blah, blah. There's so many bad... It's probably bad luck to stab a scrimshaw of a mermaid in half. I don't know if that's true, if that's part <laughs> of the mythology, but it probably is bad luck. Um, and yeah, the alcohol is something that Tom pushes on Winslow early on and then at some point winslow's the one pouring the drinks um oh yeah and, and you really see like that's sort of the way that again like he's pushing and pushing and sort of eroding away at his um sensibilities throughout this movie yeah it's this totally fascinating case study of like you know what what do people do when they are isolated and when they are idle and when you know the peer pressure comes from just these you know, two people and their power dynamic of pushing against each other. Yeah, and well, I mean, so their relationship has been described by different people, reviewers, media, uh, you know, the people involved in it. It's been described in several different ways. It has been called um, homoerotic. It has been called a relationship. It's been called a father-son relationship. It's been called a master-slave relationship. Uh, Robert Eggers said that he could picture both Freud and Jung enjoying this movie. I hate Sigmund Freud. If you check out my old YouTube channel, I've got a whole video about how much I hate Sigmund Freud. But he's not wrong. <laughs> like, um, and I believe it was Robert Pattinson who said at some point, like, in some ways, Ephraim's character wants a daddy. Like, he wants the approval of this man. He also seems oh, to absolutely. act out specifically to invoke punishment from this man. Um and yeah, the way that they sort of push and pull and have this like tense, you know, rivalry, like like they're they're mad at each other, but they kind of want each other also. Um, it's a lot. I guess we're kind of coming to the end of our time here. So 
uh jake do you have any kind of closing comments you'd like to make i just love this movie it's so weird like i don't know if you've made it to this point in the episode again there are four masturbation scenes there is a, a bird shitting on robert pattinson's chest there is so much that happens in this movie that makes it so weird the scene with the gull like i talked about how much i loved it when he bashed that gull to death on the cistern i don't know what it is about uh, uh. it it's so visceral the movie we didn't mention this off the top by the way but the movie is in basically like a one by one format like the frame is a square and it's all in black and white so it is like you feel like you are in an enclosed space and secrets are being kept from you the entire time there is it is suffocatingly bleak um and it's just like it is not a feel-good movie by any means, but it just tells a story so well. Um, sometimes the some people thought the ending was satisfying. Some people thought it wasn't. I thought it was just the right amount of ambiguous. I don't need a Marvel story every time where it's like, you know, there's a good guy and a bad guy and the good guy wins. But I also like a story that, like, makes me think. I don't like when it devolves into so much nonsense that there's nothing to be made of it. Um there was also one one more quote from Robert Eggers where someone asked him, why didn't you shoot uh, what Robert Pattinson is looking at in that final scene? Like, why didn't you show us what's in the middle of the light? And he said, well, if I showed that in the movie, the same fate would, would come to you. So... Ooh, <laughs> yeah. oh, shit. So, we're not meant to see it. I love this movie. Uh, what are your sort of final thoughts on it? I, I really liked it because it builds up pathos for both of the main characters. Like, we have some sort of an emotional attachment to both of them. Both of them are imperfect men. Both of them have lied and done bad things. We're not really sure about the entire truth. But regardless, there are, there are reasons to pity both of them. There are reasons to like both of them, to cheer either of them on in different situations. You know, you get those that appreciation, but I think, I, I think what really made this movie for me was how there was a complete, like a full and complete power inversion. You, you don't just get to see one man on top. No, you get to see both of them on top at different times. You know, Pattinson's character starts out as this kind of obedient sidekick character yeah. and at the end you know he's leading around his boss by a leash you know i i <laughs> going into this i did not um expect the kind of bdsm elements to make it in uh, yeah oh boy they were satisfying and like i i I can't get over like the intense desires they have and how those desires, like the desire, no matter what, like almost the only pure desire they have is to spend time together yeah. and to have each other's companionship. Yeah. And it's the other desires, the desire for the mermaid and the desire for like sexual gratification, the desire for that gratification of aggression and the desire for the light and enlightenment and knowledge. Those are the ones that are kind of tabooed and, you know, made bad. Whereas, you know, their only chance at kind of having this like beautiful desire come to fruition there, you know, it's a, a fear response where they literally push each other away and yeah. fight. And I'm like, man, the, the homophobia like really prevented them from finding like the only kind of like beautiful pure kind of way of overcoming their mutual isolation and oh the, the picture of this was 
it, it was a fucking ride, but I really enjoyed it. And like, like you said, like watching it for the first time was good, but watching it for the second time was just so much better. Oh my lanta! It's it's such a study of toxic masculinity for me, and this is why, like. I always say, you know, like when, when people talk about mas toxic masculinity, and I assume anyone listening is sort of like on the same wavelength as us when it comes to this, but <laughs> some people, when they hear the term toxic masculinity, they assume that it's like a um, a slandering of, of men and they won't allow that conversation, right? They're like, what, men mm -hmm. aren't all toxic? And it's like, no, but there is this element to masculinity where like, look how it affected these two guys. And like, I don't know, I, I kind of think most uh men or masculine people listening can probably think of a time where they've had a, a you know a friendship or relationship of any kind with another man whether it's a family member a friend a romantic partner wherever we're like masculinity gets in the way masculinity prevents men from enjoying each other's company because there's like this weird expectation of dominance and like there's even if you're not that kind of guy someone else might bring that onto the scene and you're like all right man i don't really want to hang out with you anymore <laughs> like <laughs> if you're gonna talk to me like that um, so yeah. I absolutely love that element of it. Like these two dudes, you know, might've gotten along famously in a different place in time, but this is the world that they find themselves in. Um, yeah, they just no... couldn't find equality. Yeah. There's it, like, yeah, there's they couldn't never... find an equilibrium. They, one of them had to be on never. top. Yeah. I love this yeah. movie. I think we could talk about it for another hour. Again, we, <laughs> full disclosure everybody we were like we'll probably try to keep this to like 45 minutes an hour total we're at like an hour 47 now so we should probably we should probably wrap it up um oh yeah <laughs> uh, yeah i i think we i think we've had a pretty good discussion so yes close this out jake would you everybody i would love to see you in our discord server in the future by the way we're gonna have more of what you think about this movie you can contribute your own thoughts and what you caught maybe you caught something in the lighthouse that we didn't catch if you join our discord server you'll be able to tell us about it and we'll read it over before we record the episode so we'll we'll sort of have what you say canonized in the episode of the podcast so uh check out our link tree it'll be in the description you'll find our discord you'll find our instagram you'll find our twitter keep up with us on everything um and i suppose i hope you have a great rest of your day you made it to friday wiki congratulations <laughs> good job you made it to the end of your shift congratulations <laughs> and now toast a drink and guan home yeah made uh god save our suppliant soul or <laughs> however that went <laughs> Oh, yes. And, uh, Jake, what is our next film that we're going to be covering? Oh, shit. We got to reveal that at the end of the episode. That's right. We're going to get better at podcasting as we go, everyone. This is episode one. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we're just hanging out with a couple pals. Our next episode is going to be American Psycho. Yeah, American Psycho. Oh, I'm a big Christian Bale fan. It is a 2000 horror slash mystery movie um, starring Christian Bale, directed by Mary Heron. Um another movie very much about toxic masculinity uh un unfortunately we we picked a very male movie for both of our first two selections our second one american psycho is directed by a woman it, it feels like more of a uh a, more of a balanced <laughs> story than certainly this one is but um yeah i'm looking forward to it there's so much to read into about like brett easton ellis the original writer christian bale um this entire movie it's it's a lot it's another one that's kind of a lot to handle but it's uh it's a very good one thank you uh thank you folks for 
tuning in and <laughs> we will we will talk to you next time about American Psycho and until then you're the best and, and we think, I think you're, you're the, the best, best. Oh. I tried to chime in with you at the same time I don't know if it works we'll fix it in post it it didn't work but we'll, <laughs> we'll work on that take care of yourself everybody